0: morning let's go ahead and open up our bibles to the book of philippians if you don't have a bible you're welcome to use the black pew bibles in front of you like always you're welcome to take it home This is not the kind of church that gets a lot of visitors. We get visitors. Not a lot of visitors. And uh, one of the questions that I get infrequently from visitors has to do with programs. What what kind of programs do you all offer at 6th Avenue for this or that or the third? And uh, most of those conversations go about how you would expect them to go, right? So they'll ask, um, Sean, do you have a biblical counseling program at Sixth Avenue to which I might open my Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, and say, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into Him who is the head. If you were to ask me, Sean, what is Sixth Avenue's mission statement? I looked on your website, I found a statement of faith, I found a church covenant. I couldn't find a mission statement. I would say, oh, well, that's just because our mission statement is Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't think I can improve upon that. If you were to ask me, Sean, what is Sixth Avenue's discipleship program? I might just open up my Bible and point to all the verses that teach congregationalism. And finally, if you were to ask me, Sean, what is the program that you guys use for the sake of unity at Sixth Avenue? I might just open up my Bible and point to this morning's text. So let's read it together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'll read aloud. You can follow along with me in the word. So. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Paul wrapped up chapter 1 by calling the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. And one of the main things that he emphasized about a worthy life was that it must be a unified life. And then here in chapter 2, Paul begins to dig deeper into this doctrine of Christian unity. What does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel through our Christian unity? And he does it in four steps. I'm going to give them to you now. These will essentially be the four points of your sermon. First, he does it with another call to unity. Then he does does it by explaining how unity works. He breaks down the mechanics of unity. And then Paul gives us an indicative for unity. And you might say, well, Sean, I don't know what that word means. Don't worry. We'll get there. And then finally, Paul explains the reward of unity. If you didn't get all that, I'll go. I'll give them to you again as we go back through it. But before I jump into point one, I want us to make a quick pit stop In Ephesians chapter 4. So just save your place in the book of Philippians and flip on over right after the book of Philippians to the book of Ephesians. No, right before. Electric power company. How could I forget? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So this is the same language from Philippians, right? Live a life worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's the same thing. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Right? So, so there, there's a sense in which if we want our lives to be worthy of the gospel, we must, we must do so by, by living unified lives in Christ. And there has to be a disposition in us that orients our life in that direction. We have to be eager for unity, not apathetic About unity, not, oh, I hope unity is something that we sort of just stumble into as a church. No, we have to be eager for it. So my exhortation to you this morning, if you've come in distracted, or even if now you're like having trouble focusing, I want to, by God's grace, call you as your pastor to be eager listeners, because this unity thing that the Lord is calling us to this morning is really, really hard. It's really hard. It's like impossible. And I'm going to say that over and over again in the sermon. And if you think you can just sort of like casually give your heart to this, you're just not going to make it. So lock in with me as we dig into God's word and to this impossibly high call to Christian unity. Point number one, the call to unity. Paul begins this call to gospel unity with the word if. You can see that if you flip back over to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, so if, if there is any of these things, then he goes on to list all of these foundations for Christian unity, right? If there's any love, if there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, all of these are foundations for Christian unity, If there are any of these things. Now, the word if here, it might lead you to believe that Paul isn't so sure about the Philippians. Like, maybe he doesn't know if they actually have a foundation for unity. Like, he's not sure if there's any encouragement in Christ. He doesn't know if there's any comfort from love among the Philippians. He's not so sure about their participation in the Spirit. That's really not what Paul is saying here. He's using the word if here in the same way that you and I might use the word since, right? So just a little bit of a rhetorical device. So let me give you an example. A husband and a wife might be working through some difficult question in their marriage, some big decision for their family. And the husband might be trying to lead the wife in a particular direction for the sake of the family. And he, he could say to his wife, Baby, if you trust me, you'll follow me on this, right? Now, when he says if in that instance, what he's really saying is since you trust me, right? Baby, I know you love me. I know you trust me. And I'm asking you to show me that you trust me by following me on this. So what Paul is saying to the Philippians here is he's saying since I know that there is encouragement in Christ. Since I know that there is comfort from love and participation in the Spirit, I'm asking you to make my joy complete by walking in unity. I think I see two immediate application points for us here in point one. The first has to do with uh, the way that we counsel one another as Christians. When we're trying to And this is all of the Christian life, by the way. This is just discipleship. When we're trying to call other Christians to be something or to do something in Christ, we should always try to do so by reminding them of what they already are and what they already have in Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. We might call this gospel-centered counseling. Okay, Whether you like that phraseology or not, it's kind of beside the point. The point is especially in the realm of rebuke and exhortation, Scripture over and over again calls people to do and to be things that they already are in Christ, right? So when Paul calls the Philippians to unity, he's calling them to live up to the reality that is already theirs in Christ. Another way of saying this is that all of the oughts of the Christian life, you know what an ought is, like you ought to do this, Right? You must do this, you should do this. All the oughts of the Christian life should always be preceded by the is of the gospel. That's what Paul's doing here. So, he's saying you ought to live lives of unity. Why? Because what? Because? Because I say so? Because I'm an apostle? Because if you don't, you're going to go to hell? No, he says... Because you are already unified. You already have comfort in love. You already have participation in the spirit. Now I need you to live like that's true. Listen, apart from like gospel-centered whatever, you probably already do this in certain areas of your life, right? So let me just give you one example. I'll use the last name Miller because there are like 15 different Miller families in the life of our church, Right? So maybe in your family, you might say something like this. You're a miller. Millers don't lie. We don't cheat and we do not steal to get ahead. In the Miller household, we work hard, we pray, and we trust the Lord. When you talk like that, what you're saying is, I expect you to live up to who you already are as a member of this family. And that's what Paul is doing with the Philippians. And You just see this all over the New Testament and really all over the Bible. Paul says you should put sin to death. Why? Because you are already dead to sin. You have been buried with Christ and raised with him to newness of life. Right. You should live holy lives, Israel. Why? Because you've already been made holy. Now you must live up to the reality of the grace that you have been called to. Friends, over and over again, this is the pattern that God uses when he calls us, his people, to change. He says, you've already been changed, now you need to live like it. The fancy theological language for this is imperative and indicative. The imperative is the command, do this, right? Be unified, you know. Uh, live sexually moral lives, so on and so forth. The indicative is the basis for the command. It's the, you're a Miller, you're already dead to sin, you've already been made holy. Now listen, when I say that this is something that we're called to, like when I say that like this is how we should counsel one another, I just have to confess to you that I really struggle with this. My default setting is like, because I said so or to point to the negative consequences of your behavior if you don't listen to what I'm telling you to do. It is a constant struggle for me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, when I'm talking to people to to do gospel-centered counseling. It's one of the things that every time I see it in the Bible again, I'm like, ah, I haven't been doing this. I should really get back to it if you've been getting the Sixth Avenue Standard, you probably got an article in the church newsletter a couple weeks ago from Kevin DeYoung where he talks about gospel-centered parenting, right? And he he has this great illustration there where he, he talks about how he imagines his conversation will go with his children versus how they actually go, right? So, like, he sits down the child and says, you know, you were unkind to your sister and 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 that's not good. And why should we be we be kind? Well, because Jesus loves us, and He's been kind to us in the gospel. And and does your sister deserve it based on the way she was acting? No, she doesn't deserve it. But but we don't deserve Jesus' kindness, and yet He's been kind to us. So you treat your sister the way that God treats you in Christ through the gospel. He says that's. That's the picturesque conversation. That's how it should go. But instead, how it really goes is, "Did you hit your sister?" No, and she hit me first, and then and then it just snowballs. And then the conversation, and you never get to the gospel. Yes, I'm reading that, and I'm going, "Yes, and Amen." That's that's most of my conversations with my children. That's half of my conversations with my wife. That's I don't, I don't want to tell you how often that is my conversation with fellow church members, right? But. This is what we're always aiming for. And you know what? When you're aiming for gospel-centered exhortation, gospel-centered encouragement, gospel-centered rebuke, sometimes you hit the mark. And when you do, it is so useful. It is so fruitful. So what I'm calling you to in this application is something very aspirational. Look at the way that God calls us to change and be imitators of God. Amen. The second application point I have for you in point one is based on joy. It has to do with joy. What I want us to see here is that Paul not only couches his call for unity in the indicative of the gospel. You're already unified. But also in his desire for the Philippians to fulfill his personal joy. Did you see the way he said that? After he lists, all, you know, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, if there's any love, then in verse 2 he says complete my joy by being of the same mind now why does he say that why does he enlist his own personal joy as a motivating factor for the Philippians to be obedient and to walk in unity something about that just kind of feels weird to us right like, even just think about it, if one of your elders was trying to talk to you about some issue in the life of the church, and, and they said, yeah, and here's a reason you should do this, and here's another reason you should do this, but, but also, like, do it for me and my own personal joy. You'd be like, huh? Right? I'm down with the theology, right? Give me the gospel indicatives. I'm down with that, but for your own joy? That just sounds weird. It feels Weird. So, why does Paul do it? Well, the answer is really simple. A congregation should strive to live together in such a way as to bring joy to their leaders. And if that feels weird to us, the problem is not with the Bible, it's with us. I know it's kind of weird for me to say it as one of your leaders, but it's in the Word, so I'm going to say it. Right? In the same way that children should not want to live in a home where their parents Are unhappy, but rather they want to live in a home where their parents are happily married and leading the family in joy. Church members should want to serve in a church where their leaders are leading joyfully, not painfully, not begrudgingly. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews says it Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, which is something that you may not understand. You, you may not understand how weighty of a thing it is to live with this verse as sort of the mantelpiece of your ministry, right? Like your elders, Will Stevenson, Shane, Russell, myself, Grant, when he comes back on, Lord willing. We have to give an account for your souls. We have to stand before God one day and say, I, I did my best, Lord, to shepherd them. And so he says, in light of that weighty reality, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. A happy pastor is a good pastor. A groaning pastor is as miserable for the church as a frustrated father or a discouraged mother is for the children in the home. So there should be in all of us an impulse, a desire to say, I'm going to live out the reality of the gospel, first and foremost, for Christ and his glory. But a couple of notches down from that. To make my pastors happy, to make their ministry easy, to fill them with joy as they lead us in the Lord. And one of the main ways that you can do that is to walk in unity. Let me just tell you. It. One of the best things about our church, one of the things that makes me happiest is how well we love each other. And I know when I say something like that, Satan may come knocking on the door of your heart, and you probably have an example of, of some time when you haven't been loved well. Well, guess what? That's just reality. That's just It's always going to be the case. But by and large, as your pastors, as we sit back and as we look at this church, we are just overwhelmed by God's grace and our ability to love each other and to walk in a unified Spirit, and it fills us with joy. Point number two, the mechanics of unity. So, in point number one, Paul says, You have a unity, live up to it. Point two, Paul is going to tell the Philippians what this unity looks like at a very practical level. Let's unpack this by looking at verse three. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves now that word selfish ambition there that's that's a, a, a good word, and it's it's so closely connected to conceit that it's kind of like a, a Hinditus there's another translation that that also gives us the word rivalry, which I think I don't want to get into all the Greek and the reasons behind it, but I think this idea of rivalry probably resonates with us more in English. And I want to try to show you how these two ideas connect. So one of the fundamental sinful impulses of humanity is that we have rivalries with one another. And the reason why is not complicated. Jesus says it like this in John 5, 44. He says, you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So Jesus says that in our sinful hearts, we want glory. And we want it bad. We're in constant competition to see who can get the most glory from other fallen human beings. And we want this glory from other human beings so bad that we'll do whatever it takes to get it. Even if it means that we have to go to war with one another in the church. Even if it means we have to destroy the unity This is basically what Paul is dealing with back in chapter 1, verse 15. Flip back there with me, chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now this connection between rivalry and conceit, the other word there in verse 3, it becomes exceedingly clear when you understand what the word conceit means. Another word for conceit is vainglory. We don't really use that word that much these days, but it's a good word. Vainglory kind of means something like an empty glory. So conceit is what we experience when we see ourselves as full of glory, even though we're not. Right? Our perceived glory is a mirage. It's counterfeit. It's empty. So let me show you how these two concepts connect. When we are full of empty glory, we chase after empty glory, the glory of fallen human beings. And that leads to rivalry, right? Because we're in this hungry, hungry hippo competition to see who can get the most empty glory. And when we do that in the life of the church, it destroys our unity in the church. So that's just the first half of verse three. The second half of verse 3 unpacks this a little more. Paul contrasts the, the concept of conceited rivalry with humble service. Look at the second half of verse 3 again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Now the word count here means to consider Or to regard. It's the same language that Paul uses later in chapter 3 when he says that he has come to count all things as rubbish, right? So here's what Paul's saying Even if your fellow church members are not more significant than you, even if they're not more important than you, in, in your eyes, in God's eyes, in anybody's eyes, you must consider them as more important than yourself. If I asked you to do so, I bet you could probably stop right now and think of someone in the church that you think is not as important as you. You maybe would be able to think of two or three people. Maybe you win the prize of being the most prideful person in the church and you actually think that no one is as important as you but the gospel says that we are called to view every single person in the church as more significant than ourselves. In other words, God is calling us to adopt the heart and the posture of a servant. You see that even more clearly in verse 4. Look there. Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how a servant thinks, right? A servant does not walk around his master's house thinking, I'm the most important person here. My concerns are the weightiest concerns. My needs are the most important needs. My desires factor most heavily into this family's equation. No, the servant thinks, I'm the lowest. I'm the least of all. I sit at the, at the position of lowest honor at the table. I wait for everyone else to get done before I participate. The servant thinks, My role is not to be served, but to serve. My job is to seek the good and the happiness of everyone else in this home. Thinking of ourselves as servants in the master's house should not be a stretch for us. Do you know why? Because we are servants in the master's house. Yes, we are sons and daughters, we are friends but that does not cancel out, cancel out the fact that we are servants. When you think about even just the apostle Paul and the way that he talks about himself, what is one of the main titles that he uses to describe himself to these churches? The churches that he planted, the churches where he brought the gospel, the churches that he trained up using his apostolic and pastoral authority. What does he call himself? How did he introduce himself to the Philippian church? Do you remember? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. He is an apostle, and he's not afraid to say that. But he is eager, he is quick, he is excited and joyful to talk about the fact that he is a slave in the household of God. And it's not just because he's a slave of God, but he's master over everyone else in, the, in God's house. No, he's a slave of God, and he's a slave of everyone in the church. During the pandemic, we saw a lot of rules for thee, but not for me stuff happening, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Y'all got to wear masks. And then you see them, they're at this event, they're not wearing masks, right? That, that's not Paul here. Paul's not like, hey, guys, you really got to be, you got to think of yourselves as, as servants, okay? We got to be slaves to all. Now, me, I'm an apostle. The servant thing, that's not for me. That's for you, though, and I'm happy that you get to do that. no. He sets the example, right? He's like the leader that none of us really like, but we all respect when he gets down in the muck and mire with us and he leads from the front. He sets the example. Before we move on to point three, I want us to just note, just just focus on this very intentional contrast that Paul is creating here for the sake of our clarity. Right? He is contrasting humility, I am nothing, with conceit. I'm glorious. Right, And that, that leads to certain actions that are contrasted. Rivalry, we're going to fight over this glory, versus service. I'm going to serve you and try to glorify you in all that I say and do and think. Do you see that contrast? I don't, I don't just mean... Um, like in the Bible, I mean, do you see that contrast in this church? Do you see that contrast in your home, in your family? Do you see it in your heart? This is a Copernican revolution for every person who experiences it because we live our whole lives at the center of our own universe, never wanting to serve always expecting to be served, as if the universe revolves around us, right? That's just the way we're trained to think from the time we're, just from babies, we just grow up thinking, we're the star of the show, we're the hero of the story, we're the most important character in the cast. And then we get saved, and hopefully we get humbled. I don't know how you can be saved without being humbled, right? But that old man still lives in us. We still walk in the flesh. We still live in the world. And then pretty soon, Jesus, who was once at the center of the story, he was the star of the show. He was the most important. We were nothing. He was everything. Pretty soon, that begins to shift. And pretty soon, we begin to move back towards center stage. And we start thinking, you know, these people aren't really serving me the way I deserve to be served. You know? Don't they see me? Don't they know who I am? I deserve better than this. And then we bring this mentality into the church. Because that's just the way it works. Carnality always works its way into the church. We always have to be fighting it back. It's like living in the jungle. You go out with your machete and you chop, chop, chop away. And you get all of your land cleared and you're like, yes, mission accomplished. False. Mission accomplished for like five minutes. And then it all starts growing back and you have to go out there and fight against the brush to always keep your land clear. In the same way, we, we get this mindset of service in the church and we, 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 we think, yes, mission accomplished. No, we have to fight to maintain this spirit, this attitude constantly, because if we don't, we will end up being the people in the church who expect everyone to serve us, never thinking about how we can serve others always expecting to be attended to, never attending to anyone else. And then we'll be jaded when we feel like we haven't received as much as we deserve. Pretty soon, my ideas are the most important ideas. My complaints are the most important complaints, and if you don't agree with me, I'm going to say them louder. My ministry ideas are the best ideas, and if you don't do it, if the church doesn't take my ministry ministry idea up and champion it, well, then why not? My musical preferences matter the most. Which is really all just a bunch of different ways of saying, don't you see my glory? And then Jesus comes along and he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So once again, the gospel is calling us to something impossible here. We must, according to this call, fight against every impulse of our flesh. And we have to figure out some way to love other people more than we love ourselves. We have to consider other people as more important than we consider ourselves. We have to say, your preference is more important than my preference. Do you understand how impossible this is? Why do you think so many newly married couples struggle? You know, a year into marriage and you're like, I'm fighting for my life. Yeah, that's because you've been single and it's all been about you. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Then you get married and all of a sudden, guess what? You have to put somebody else's preferences before your own. And then whew, kids come into the equation and guess what? Your preferences matter like this much. And by the way, it is not a coincidence that the best parents I know have just the biggest servant's heart. They just see themselves as servants in the family. The best pastors I know are not pursuing ministry to, to inflate their own empty glory. They're doing it because they love the church. They love the sheep. They want to give themselves to serve the body of Christ. They see themselves truly as the servant of all. So, given how impossible this is, how do we do it? That leads us to point number three. The second indicative of humble unity. Look at verse five. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, this is really interesting. On the one hand... Everything that I've said so far is true. This is impossible. This is a bar that we cannot reach on our own. And then Paul comes along in verse 5 and he says, there's a very real sense in which, by God's grace, this is possible. Right? He says, have this mindset. It's yours. You can do it. But he says, in Christ Jesus. If you are going to try to do this according to your own strength and your own power, According to your own wisdom, without completely 100% relying on the grace of Christ, you're going to fail. You're like, Sean, I get it. The path to a healthier marriage is for me to seek the good of my spouse above my own good. Roger that. I'm going to go do it. And then you just like white knuckle your service to your spouse. I don't really want to do it. and I don't actually think that you're better than me. I don't really think your preferences matter more. But if this is what I got to do for a healthy marriage, then let's do it. That's not going to cut it. It's only grace that can sustain you through this. It's only grace that can change your heart and actually help you to see other people as more significant than yourself. Let's unpack this a little more. Earlier in the sermon, I told you that for every gospel imperative, that's every command, there's always a gospel indicative. That's a basis in grace for your ability to do that command. So here in verses 6 through 11 we find that the second gospel indicative comes up. The first one was, you know, participation in the spirit, sharing in love and all that. The second one is found here in verses 6 through 11. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 6. So he already said, this is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, you see that word count there in verse 6? That's the same word from verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, You must count or consider others as more significant than yourselves. Now, here in verse 6, Paul is telling you how you can do that. Russell, Jackie, Shane, right? Are you struggling to see that person, to count that person as more significant than yourselves? How can you do it? Look at Jesus He counted us as more significant than himself. We can do it because that's what Jesus did for us. Right? Jesus was completely equal with God. And yet the text says that he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now that word grasped there, it just means kept or like clung to, right? Like he didn't fight for that. He didn't fight tooth and nail to maintain his equality with God. He was in heaven enjoying the eternal bliss and felicity of fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. And everything was perfect. Nothing needed to change. And yet, he sacrificed that. And he came down and he took on human flesh to save us. According to verse 7, he let it all go by taking on the form of a servant. Verse 8 says that he humbled himself, which is exactly what Paul is telling us to do. He's saying if you want to have unity in the church, you have to learn to humble yourself. And now he's telling you how you do it. How, how do I humble myself in this way? Just look at Jesus and how he humbled himself in the gospel. And why did he do it? Why did he sacrifice everything good that he had in heaven? Well, he did it for us. Go back, look at verse 4 again. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, Jesus became a servant to take on our interests, to look after us. Another way you can say this is, he did it because he loves us. That's not the only reason he did it, but it is one of the main reasons why he did it because he loves us and he wants to serve us. Now, I want you to notice, I want you to think about who we were when he came to save us. When Christ gave his life for you, were you loving Christ? Were you serving Christ? Were you seeking after Christ? Were your affections for Christ? Did you see him as he truly is, as the most true and beautiful and glorious and lovely being in existence? Were you worshiping him in spirit and truth? No. You were in rebellion. You were sinning. You were blind. You were darkened to the reality of the glory of Christ. You were at enmity with him. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5. For while we were in, enemies. Is that how you have... It, some, I, some, sometimes it blows my mind. I'll be sitting there and I'll be talking to someone and I'll be like, hey, let me hear your Christian testimony. And they'll say something to the equivalent of like, yeah, I started going to church, you know, and I've been in church for uh, since I was a teenager and I love church. I'm really glad. Things could be worse than you enjoying being in church. And I hope that we live in a society where people enjoy going to church. But friend, I need to hear something from you that insinuates that you have just the tiniest awareness of the fact that you need to be saved because you're an enemy. It's not just that you're lost. It's not like you were just out there confused like, oh, I hope I find my way. You were actively opposing God. You were working against God. You were telling lies about God. You were worshiping God. False gods, namely yourself, you were seeking your own good, your own pleasure, and your own glory above that of the only God who actually deserves any of it. And when you were committing all of these heinous, treasonous crimes against God, he came to you to serve you, to love you. And when he looked on you, when he had no reason to look on you, when he looked on you, he said, You are more significant than me. What? How is that possible? You, you traitorous rebel. You are more significant. Listen, have you been betrayed before? Man, it hurts. It hurts. It stings. Sting isn't a good enough word for it, especially the closer you are to the person. When the betrayal comes, it cuts even deeper When someone treats you that way, it's like, I can't even look at you. I can't can't even stomach the thought of you, much less being around you. Well, none of us have ever been betrayed the way that God was betrayed by us in our sin. And yet, he didn't turn his face away from us. He didn't turn his heart away. He, He turned to us and he looked right at us in all of our sin and rebellion. And he said, you matter more. You are more significant. You know, uh, this word significant in verse 3 that's really being unpacked here in verses 6 through 11, what it really means is to be worthy of service. Again, he looked at us and he said, you are worthy of my service. Please, once again, note the contrast. Us, because of our sin, in reality, what are we worthy of? Death. The guy who discipled me, whenever he talks about hell, he says, friends, you have to be a Christian in order to believe in the doctrine of hell because hell is the place where God gives us what we so richly deserve. So when he looks on us and he sees us as worthy of service, it's incredible. Because the only thing that we're worthy of is his wrath. And yet he counts us as worthy of service. And then Christ, who is worthy of our service, who's worthy of every good thing, all praise, all glory, all honor or do his name, what he gets is death, our death. What he gets is the wrath of God that we deserve. And then the gospel gives us the reversal in our favor. We, the rebels, receive the service of Christ, and Christ receives the punishment. And friends, the death that He takes in our place is not just any death. It's a shameful, horrific, painful, unworthy, shameful death on a cross. It's a death that's utterly devoid of glory. And it's all in the humble service of Of his enemies. If you're here this morning and you're wrestling with the claims of the gospel, I I do wonder if you've ever thought about the gospel in these terms before. I know that sometimes God can be talked about as if he's nothing but an angry disciplinarian. And, And to be fair, he is angry with our sin and he is a disciplinarian. But I wonder if you've ever thought about the gospel through this lens of service. If you've ever considered the fact that in the gospel, God has made it his aim to serve you in love. He wants to serve you in humility. I wonder what do you think will be the result if you reject that humble service, right? Because the reason why he has to come in service and humility is because we've already rejected him. We've rejected his love. We've rejected his glory. We've rejected his beauty. And then he goes, you know what? Even though that offense is infinitely offensive and infinitely worthy of hell and death and wrath, even though it is infinitely offensive to me, I'm going to come and serve you. In humility, I'm going to come and make a way for you to come back to me. If you reject even that offer of mercy and grace, if you reject the humble service that comes after your rebellion, what do you think is left? Friends, do not wait until tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation, which means today is the day to let Christ serve you in love. For the members of Sixth Avenue, just to reiterate for the fifth time how impossible this is for us to live out in our local church and and listen if you think this is doable you're delusional if you think as you're hearing me talk about this sort of humble service required of us in the gospel living it out in the church and you think yeah i'm pretty much doing that sean i'm crushing it like i'm, I'm a plus in it you're delusional If you're saying, by God's grace, I'm aiming at that target. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't, but I'm aiming for it. That's a more reasoned way to think about what God is calling us to here. But what I want you to see here is that the gospel always does this to us. This is a consistent pattern. The gospel calls us to this impossibly high standard that we can never meet on our own. And then right when we feel the appropriate level of hopelessness, The gospel says, but you can do it as long as you depend on my grace. And then it says something more. It says not only can you do it by grace, but you must do it. So if it feels to you like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth this morning, that's not me. That's just kind of the warp and woof of the gospel. You are called to unity in this church through humble service, and you cannot do it, and you must do it by God's grace. I want to be clear about what we're talking about. There is uh, a temptation in all of us, really more of a tendency in all of us, towards uh, Phariseeism, right? Right? Another way you can think about this is like uh, checking the box, right? So what, what you might do is walk away from this sermon and you might start creating a checklist in your mind of things for you to do so you can feel like, even by God's grace, you're living up to this. That's the wrong way. That, that, that will lead you down the path of misery and comparison and self-justification. You'll start thinking in terms of works-based righteousness what I'm talking about here is deeper than that it's it's a mindset it's the way that you see yourself and the way that you see everyone else I'm talking about viewing your whole life through this lens so all of your time the most precious thing we have all of your time given in humble service to others do you feel the weight of that? You know how, like, you get home from a rough day at work, you're supposed to be a light, easy eight hours, you come home after 12 hours, you're frazzled, you're fried. You come home and then you get a text from someone in the church and they say, hey, can we talk or can you help me with this? And you think, I don't want to do that. I have to, I have to go to bed in, like, two hours. And then the alarm clock's going to slam me back into reality at 5 a.m. where I'm going to head into work. And I just don't, I just, this is my time. You know, it's my time. Can I get me time? That is the place where you see if this is real. Where your time is not your time. It's Christ's time. It's the time for your other brothers and sisters in the church. You know this is real when all of your talent is given in the service of others. The things that you would normally charge money for. The things that you think like, well, I don't normally do this for free. Yeah. But what does humble service look like? And by the way, this is not a license to take advantage of people in the church. It's a a difficult balance. We should not demand this of other people, but we should in our hearts be Readily, joyfully willing to give it to other people. That's a tough balance too. All of your treasure, even your best treasure, in the service of others. I remember I, I grew up really poor, and we never had nice things, but if we ever got anything nice, it came from my wealthy grandmother. And the pattern in my household would be wealthy grandmother would give us a gift, like a really like a like a new VCR. Kids ask your parents later what a VCR is. And uh, I remember one time, I'll just use that as an example. I remember one time my grandma gave me a VCR. She knew I loved movies. And we had an old ratty VCR. Half the buttons were broken. You couldn't rewind, you know, that kind of a thing. And uh, my mom said, oh, well, the new nice VCR is going to go for us in the living room, and you get the old VCR, right? And that's kind of how we treat our treasures, right? We can be generous, but usually what that looks like is, like, we give people our leftovers, we give people our second best. When we serve others with our treasure, we, we look at our budget and we say, What do I need to live a comfortable life? And then if I can, if I can do that and I have anything left over that hasn't gone into like 401k or vacation fund or this, out of the third, then that money can go towards serving you. Friends, what if Christ would have treated us like that? What if that's the way he thought about his service to us? What if he said, you know what? I don't want to disrupt my comfort in heaven. I don't want to ruin the vibe that I have with my Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. But if I can find somehow, some way to carve out some time for you, I'll come down and I'll save you. No. He gave us his best. He doesn't give us his leftovers. He doesn't give of himself begrudgingly to us. He gives himself to us joyfully. And he does so not expecting anything in return. This is one of the biggest struggles in application of this principle in the church. Even if we know in our hearts and in our minds that this is not a quid pro quo relationship, we still tend to treat it that way. And if we give of our humble service to others and we don't feel like we're getting enough in return, we let bitterness grow up in our hearts. Friends, you're not serving other people in the church for you. You're serving them for them. That's what love is. Love is when you seek the good of the other and you're doing it for the glory of Christ. So even if they never return it, even if they never say thank you, your father in heaven who sees will reward you. It's easy to serve others with our leftovers. It's easy to serve others with a begrudging spirit. It's easy to give something expecting something back. That's just the market mentality we have. But the kind of service Christ is calling us to in the gospel is not like that. It's the kind of service. Hear me clearly, because this is what's This is why so many churches are not united. It's the kind of service that only a regenerate heart can do. It's the kind of service that can only be accomplished, accomplished in the church where the Holy Spirit is active and presently at work in our hearts to help us obey the gospel. And we at Sixth Avenue must put this into practice because if we don't, Satan will tear this church apart. The root of bitterness will grow up among us. Animosity, rivalries, conceit, jealousy, gossip, slander, and factionalism will be the fruit of our so-called service and worship. Point number four. The reward of humble unity. There's a kind of Christian ethic that says that we should never do good and that word never is intentional. We should never do good for the sake of our own personal gain. That kind of sounds a little bit like what I just said just now, right? Watch me thread this needle. This ethic has a thin, shiny veneer of virtue, but at its root is not what Jesus teaches us. If if, if Jesus is teaching, if, if we think the gospel says, or if you've come to believe that the only worthy service I can offer to someone is service where I don't seek a reward, then I would, I would propose to you that what Jesus taught was profoundly unethical. If your ethical system says I should never do good to seek a reward, then I would say that what Jesus taught was profoundly unethical. Let me show you what I mean. Let me just give you some scriptures. I'm going to give you three, but just know that I could do this all day. Matthew 5, 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Okay, so why should you rejoice? Because you have a reward. You should be happy. You should endure this persecution knowing that there is something coming to you. Matthew 6, 14. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying, don't behave this way, because if you behave this way, you won't get the reward that you should very much want. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. And then he goes on and on and he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your Father will reward you. Finally, Matthew 25. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, if a preacher tells you, you should never do good expecting something in return as a reward... They've just misunderstood the way Jesus talks about doing good, right? And maybe they've misunderstood it for good reasons. You know, they've gotten it wrong, but for right reasons. Maybe they're trying to protect against the prosperity gospel and that way of thinking. But even so, it's an overcorrection. So in this morning's text, Paul, like Jesus, calls us to consider the reward of our humble service. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father now i know that there's a lot of theology to unpack here and it feels like we could do like 15 sermons about what it means for christ to like reign as lord but that's that's not really what paul is trying to get us to focus on here He's using this as an example to help us see what our reward is when we humble ourselves. What he says is, Jesus humbled himself in service and therefore he was exalted to the position of highest authority, Lord of all. Because Jesus made himself low, he was exalted on high. Because he became a servant, he was made the king of kings. Because he emptied himself of his glory, he was given maximum glory. Paul is saying this to the Philippians so they can see the pattern after which they should live their own lives. That therefore, in verse 9, it's not just for the Philippians, it's for us. If this is what happened to Jesus, if he humbled himself and was therefore exalted, then if we humble ourselves, we too will be exalted. What Paul is doing is he's pointing to our reward. This is the the carrot that God dangles in front of us as he leads us along the path of righteousness. Listen to Luke 14. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that. Why should you humble yourself so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. So when Jesus says you should humble yourself, he says, because there's a reward that comes at the end of that humility. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see, friends? Jesus is saying, you should want to be exalted. You should want that. The problem is not with wanting to be exalted. The problem is the kind of exaltation we want. Listen to the way 1 Peter says this. Basically a commentary on what Jesus has already said. He says... Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Sounds like Philippians. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So if you're thinking, I'm just going to humble myself just because I want to be humble. And I, all that exaltation stuff, that's not for me. That's not the way the Bible talks. The Bible says you should seek your own exaltation. And if you think, Sean, that's blasphemy, well, then it's just you've misunderstood the kind of exaltation that we're supposed to pursue. One more from the author of Hebrews. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. This is his humble service, right? He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Exaltation. The author of Hebrews writes that to these people who are struggling to humble themselves under the burden of persecution. And he's saying, if you will humble yourself, you'll be exalted just like Christ humbled himself and he was exalted. And if Christ's motivation is exaltation, then our motivation should be exaltation. So, friends, here's my final word to you this morning chase glory but chase the right kind of glory. Don't chase conceit. Don't chase vain glory. Don't chase empty glory that we receive from other human beings. Chase the glory of God that he gives to you when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Do you understand that that's a kind of glory? Right? Right? If you have a servant in your house and your servant has been faithful and you call your servant up in front of everyone in the house and you say, you have done a good job. That's glorifying the servant. That is the glory and exaltation that's promised us. And it is the main motivating factor in your pursuit of humble service. That's what Paul is saying in this morning's text. Choose and chase after the right glory in the right way at the right time and humility can be yours. Let's pray. Father, we are helpless, but you are powerful. We are weak, but you are strong. We are sinful, but you are holy and righteous and good. So Father, we pray that you'll help us to to do the things that we've seen in this morning's text, and to be the kind of people that you're calling us to be. In the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ forever and ever. Amen.